The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelations chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with, his, with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." This is the word of the Lord. Sacred City, we are people of the book. I stand up here every Sunday morning behind this pulpit, and my Bible is open, not sharing my opinions, but instead sharing the eternal word of God, because God has given us a Bible so that we can know him. God isn't sort of this theoretical being that is, There definitely is mystery to knowing God, but it's not that we are in the dark completely about who God is. 
And so this is a distinctive of Christians, that we love the word of God, that we cherish it, we devour it, we study it together. And when you come to the Bible, you realize it's not just a book. The Bible is actually 66 different books written by dozens of authors throughout the time domain of 3,400 3, ish years. And it's all cataloged together and put in this nice leather bound book for us, maybe even on your smartphone. And you would think with so many different voices contributing to the word of God over such a large time domain, the theme of scripture would sort of be all over the place. It'd be a little schizophrenic, right? Because certainly each author comes with their own agenda. Now, I don't know, when I was in high school, I was part of our speech team, and one of the, one of the events that I participated in was uh, group improvisation, um, it was a time where I just loved Saturday Night Live. I loved sketch comedy, all that stuff. And I thought, man, I could just really do this. And so I had a couple of buddies, and we would, we would try to make these really funny skits, just starting with uh, developing our characters, developing this theme, and kind of creating a story on the fly. Now, what I found out in that process is when even when you have like two or three or four people that are trying to have a say in what the theme is or what the storyline is, it's all over the place. It's very messy, but unlike my high school improv team, these authors, as they're, they're sharing the theme of Scripture, the story of Scripture, they were remarkably inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they have a single vision, a single theme. Literary scholars, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, are absolutely blown away by this. They marvel at this because there's no book in history that's quite like scripture. How it has so many different authors over such a large time domain, yet it's coherent and succinct within itself. From cover to cover, the theme of the Bible is the same. And you can sum it up in, in two simple words. God saves. That's the message of scripture. Every book of the Bible, every story that you hear throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is about how God saves. In Genesis, it's packed with stories of how God saves. There's Noah. God saves Noah and his family from this flood that wipes out the entire earth. There's a guy named Lot who moves into this sinful town, these two towns, Sodom and Gomorrah, and God rains down fire and destroys these cities, but God saves Lot and his family. Then we see the people of God who are known as Israel, where they're in this time where they're in a famine, and God saves them from famine by moving them into Egypt. And then the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, is about how God saves his people from corrupt slavery in Egypt and moves them into or is moving them toward the promised land. And you go through the Old Testament and it keeps going. God saves his, or God saves his people from their enemies, right? nation against nation, and God's people triumph. We see David and Goliath and God saves his people through this David, this little shepherd boy who goes on to become the king of Israel. You see in the story of Esther, where God saves his people by this faithful young woman speaking up. 
You see, in Jonah, where Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches the gospel, though he's a little bit reluctant, God saves the city of Nineveh in their repentance. We see in the Psalms where, where it's all about how God saves or a plea for God to save. We see things like the psalmist saying, the Lord is my salvation. That's what salvation means, deliverance, saving. Isaiah proclaims of God's salvation, and he points forward to the future where God would do it in a more complete and more robust way, and it goes on and on and on. And every story, especially in the Old Testament, points to this. And when we get to the end of the Old Testament, We see God's people having these little tastes. They they catch a glimpse of what it means to be saved, but it's never completely fulfilled in the most robust and ultimate kind of way. The Old Testament ends where God's people are just longing to be saved. And God promises a messenger who would come and prepare the way for this Savior, the Messiah who would come. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know that this Messiah, the Savior that would come is Jesus. Luke chapter 2 announces his arrival. And as Scripture continues into the New Testament, it shows us who Jesus is and actually expands the idea of what it means to be saved. Now, you could argue that these two things, who Jesus is and what it means to be saved, are perhaps the most important parts about the Christian faith. If you lose Jesus, you lose the idea of salvation and vice versa. If you want to talk about salvation, then you have to talk about Jesus. And so it's essential if we want to understand the message of the Bible, we want to understand what God is getting at, we have to understand who Jesus is and understand what it means, the scope and breadth of what it means to be saved. Now, most people, whether they're new to the faith, Christians, or they're curious, not yet believers, they're curious about, they want to learn more, and they want to learn more about Jesus, what it means to be saved. And so they ask, well, where do I read about this? Where Where do I turn in my Bible to learn more about Jesus? Because you could pick up your Bible and start reading on page one, and it's going to be a long time before you hear anything about this Jesus from Nazareth. So where do we say, well, typically people say, well, go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are accounts. These are historical accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Right? This is where Jesus' life is captured, where his teachings are documented. And when we look at the Gospels, we see really kind of a... a a shocking picture of Jesus. If we're, if we're imagining the savior of the world, wouldn't he come with some clout? With some, some power, some prestige? Wouldn't he come as a, a conquering king to tread on the enemies of the world? But that's not the Jesus we encounter in the gospels. We meet a Jesus who is meek, and lowly at heart. 
We meet a Jesus who is humble and profoundly wise. A Jesus who looks at the people who are suffering, who are caught in sin and sickness, and who has compassion on them. We, we see a Jesus who likes to eat. He, he's kind of chill. He, he likes to sit at the table and share meals with people that you wouldn't imagine he'd share meals with, sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes, even the Pharisees. And we see this picture of Jesus, and he seems like he's a, a really nice dude, right? He'd, he'd, make a, he'd make a good dinner guest. And then you go on and you read toward the end of the Gospels how, how Jesus goes on and he gets murdered by this corrupt political system. And you wonder, now, I think I'm into this Jesus who's nice and kind and compassionate and gentle and lowly and meek, but how can this Jesus be the Savior if he's going to end up dead? Right? In fact, that's what he was mocked about when he was at the cross. Jewish people were looking, and he's like, if you're the Christ, save yourself. Right? How can you save other people? How can you be the savior of the world if you yourself are nailed to a cross? Now, the first century Jews, they wanted a socio-political kind of salvation. It was an era where they were under Roman rule. Emperor had kind of assumed the land. The, the Roman government was kind of the, the, the big umbrella, and then they allowed Jewish culture to sort of exist under uh, their scrutiny. And so the Jews felt like they were sort of oppressed, which they were. They had big brother looking over their shoulder all the time. And so they were thinking that salvation looks like the kingdom of Israel being restored. I, almost, I couldn't think of the word for a minute. The kingdom of Israel being restored. They're thinking a political kingdom that, that Jesus or a new king would come and sit on an earthly throne and create an earthly kingdom and that people would become a world superpower. That's what they thought. Now, one advantage of being an American Christian is that we can see, we have a little bit of perspective here to see that that wasn't what Jesus was after. And Jesus made that pretty clear in his life and then his death. That he wasn't here to just set up some sort of political kingdom, to offer some sort of socio-political salvation. He was here to set up a version of salvation that transcended world kingdoms. He wanted to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And his death, it, it wasn't actually defeat. That Jesus didn't lose. His death was actually the means in which he could go on to conquer, to bring salvation, to save God's people, and the power of the resurrection validated it. But here's my question. If, if first century Jews, now keep in mind, they were devout Jews, they, they memorized scripture. They attended worship gatherings frequently. If these people can get it wrong, can we? Is, is it possible that our version of Jesus is too one-dimensional? 
Is it possible that we've overemphasized things or even underemphasized things about Jesus, distorting who the real Jesus is? Now, it's, it's easy for evangelicals. And I think even in some sense, culture at large looks at Jesus and they see a, a spiritual version of Mr. Rogers. Like just some friendly, nice, buddy-buddy guy. He's kind. He's considerate. He's got some pretty cool sweater vests. He's polite. He's always got something insightful to say. But he's pretty agreeable, right? It's hard to not like Mr. Rogers. And so we think, oh, yeah, of course, Jesus, yeah, he's a nice guy. He'd make a great dinner guest. Man, I, I bet he's just full of stories. He's real, not real assertive. He's just, just, just an enjoyable guy to be with. Where we're at in Revelation 19 pushes back on this. And if our version of Jesus is a little distorted, could it be that our, our version or our understanding of salvation is also minimized or reduced? Now, in Christian circles, you hear a lot about being saved, right? We, we use that language, and it's good. It's good to use that language because that's biblical language. But evangelical culture has sort of made this into some sort of Christian slang for having an emotional response to the gospel. You know what I'm talking about? It's like when you're in church camp. Did you get saved? Oh, yeah, I, I prayed this prayer. I, I walked down the aisle. I raised my hand. I responded in some sort of emotional way that now I know I'm saved. And, and what happens is we sort of reduce that because it's now I know that I'm saved, and now I know when I die I can get to heaven. And, that, and that's sort of like the scope of what salvation means. Now, that's true. When, when, when we're saved, when we die, we go to be with Jesus in heaven. That, that's, that's part of salvation, but that's not the whole of salvation. There's much more to our salvation. And to think of that as just, I get to go to heaven when I die, is reductionistic. See, this is why revelation is such a gift to the church, as we've been trotting our way through these books, these chapters of the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is a very complicated book, what it's been doing is helping us round out our understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be saved. In fact, if we don't have what Revelation tells us about Jesus, then our version of Jesus is incomplete. But to be honest, I wouldn't recommend, if you're new to the Bible, starting here. I tried once in high school. We were on a family vacation, and I picked up my Bible, and I said, you know what? I'm going to, by the end of this trip, I'm going to read the whole book of Revelation, and I'm going to have it all figured out. I'm going to write a book about it, maybe preach some sermons about it. Then, you know, then we'll put this case closed. All of the questions will be put to rest But the book of Revelation is very confusing. There's a lot of imagery and metaphor. And, and at first glance, it's kind of off-putting. And at times, it's just downright uncomfortable. But if you don't lose the forest through the trees, if you don't get caught up in the minutiae and the details, what you see here is 
the Bible reaching the climax of its theme that God saves. Now, Revelation is a unique piece of literature. It's, it's actually a documentation. It's an archive of a vision that the Apostle John received from Jesus. Jesus shows up while John is praying on the Sabbath day, and God just blows his mind open with these visions from heaven. And in the first few chapters, he's showing John, and, and by way of showing John, he's showing us who Jesus is. He, we see him at the very beginning, that he's worthy. He's this conquering king, that he's worthy to take the scroll from God and this mighty, powerful Jesus, that he's actually more than what we see in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then John helps us see evil correctly. He starts pointing out these characters who are adamantly opposed to God and want to undermine everything he does. And so we, we meet Satan, who is the great red dragon, and we meet his little minions, the, the first beast, who is the Antichrist, and the, the second beast, who is the false prophet. He's exposing the fact that there are real enemies that are opposed to God. And then last week, we saw how culture works. He's exposed how the world is set up in a way that, that naturally undermines what God is doing, convincing people that they can live a life without any thought of God. And they lure us away from life with God. Now, this is why we used the, the language last week of, of this great prostitute. That's what chapter 18 is about. And, and you see the downfall of this woman at the beginning of chapter 19 where, where they say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true for he has judged the great prostitute And so he's starting to show us what this salvation means. These, these powers of darkness are being eliminated one by one as they entered. And now in chapter 19, John and Jesus actually is giving us a robust vision of who Jesus is. And in doing so, he's helping us to see the scope, the breadth, the width, the depth, the length of what it means to be saved. And he does this by using what seem to be two opposing images, very contrary to one another. He uses the image of a meal and a war. Now, at the core, these two things are intrinsically different. They, they communicate two very different things. You think about a meal, a family meal, where you're sitting around the table, or, or a wedding feast. A, a meal says, come closer. I, I want to be with you. I want to enjoy you. I want to know you. A meal expresses community and hospitality. But a war exposes the opposite, or expresses the opposite. It says, get away from me. It says, I don't like you. It's aggression. It's hostile. It's, it's bloody. And John takes these two things that seem to be at odds with one another. 
things that don't really make sense when we put them together. And he says, you know what? You don't know what salvation is until you can hold both of these things and say yes to both. That's the paradox of biblical revelation. Think about it. The kingdom of God is where the first are last and the last are first. It's this upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. There's paradox in truth. And so holding these two things together sort of corrects our reductionistic understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be saved. And so we're going to start actually at verse 6. If you want to turn to your Bibles or look up here on the screen, we're going to start in verse 6, and we're going to pay attention. We're going to try to learn what, it, what salvation means through this marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah. Now listen, hallelujah is a churchy word, right? You hear it, you kind of know what it means. This, in chapter 19, we actually see it a few verses before, but chapter 19 is the first time you see the word hallelujah in the New Testament. It's used way back in the Old Testament. And hallelujah means praise be to God or, or praise Yahweh. And so here, even in using this one word, shows us how God is linking the Old Testament to the New Testament. The theme is the same. God saves. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, if you're looking here in your Bible, you'll notice that, that there's a break Mid-sentence, You see uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 are sort of separated from the rest of the text. It's sort of this, this quotation, but then you see this big dash. John breaks in mid-sentence to note what the bride is wearing. It's as if the doors to the chapel have been opened and you see the bride in a radiant beauty and you're like, wow, what a beautiful dress. What is that made of? What is that? And he explains this, this bright linen that the bride is wearing, which, by the way, the bride is the church. All right, I don't, I don't think I had that in my notes, but I just want to show the bride is the church. And she is wearing these bright linens, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, I, w I want you to mentally dog ear that little line here because. This is going to be really important when we come back to this next week. But here, John is placing a clear emphasis on her good deeds. Now, in Reformed circles that believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which we are part of that, those circles, there's a tendency to downplay, to minimize the importance of obedience. 
But if you are saved by grace, if Jesus has showed up in your life and become more beautiful to you than anything else, then you'll become obedient to God little by little, progressively over the course of your life. Because being saved by grace and being obedient to God are not opposed to one another. They work together. They cannot be divorced. Paul talks about, oh, we're saved by grace. It's all grace. And he says, should we go on sinning? By no means. And then he challenges the church, walk in obedience. Walk in the way in which God has called you to live. Now, John is not saying that it's the good works of the church by themselves that saves her. That's not what he's saying at all. He's theologically accurate, even within these couple of verses here. He says, she has made herself ready in these dazzling clothes, not by just muscling through it, not by just bearing down and knocking it out but because it was granted her to clothe herself. She didn't just do it herself. God's grace was involved and preceded her clothing herself. And so what we see, this bride that Christ meets, she doesn't just sit around and twiddle her thumbs. She doesn't just waste the grace that's been given, the grace upon grace that's been given to her. She leans into grace. She acted on grace to prepare herself in doing good works, which we're told were prepared for us to do before the foundations of the earth. And so we see this bride, radiant, clothed in fine linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. And so we've got this bride in verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb. See, here's the first vision that John gives us. It's this this vision of a, a wedding feast. He's saying to us, salvation is a wedding banquet. Now, what does that mean? To really understand what's going on here, we need to step outside of our American culture and step into the mind of, of Hebrew culture because when it comes to marriage and wedding and engagements, things are very different. In America, you can get engaged. It's a very exciting thing. We've had a couple of engagements over the last few months. They're very exciting uh, to celebrate two lives uh, coming together. Um, but in American culture, engagement really doesn't mean anything. Like, sorry to rain on your parade. Engagement doesn't really mean anything. You, you, you've given a ring, great, that's exciting, hooray. Um, but you can return that ring. You can turn around and sell it on Craigslist. Like, like there's, there's no real commitment made at that point. It's just sort of a format. It's a, it's a commitment that I want to do this with you at some point down the line. And so in a very real sense, nothing really happens in in engagement until you walk the aisle, until you make your vows to one another, until you sign the legal documents and you celebrate and consummate that marriage. 
Now, in Hebrew culture, it's sort of inversed. This, this engagement process, this time of engagement was called betrothal. A man and wife would come together and they would make vows. And instead of going to a celebration and then going right to consummate the wedding afterward, they would have this time of, of betrothal where they were actually apart, committed and vowed to one another, yet apart. The husband would take this time of living apart to prepare a home for his new bride, of paying the dowry that the bride's father was entitled to. And sometimes this would take a couple months, sometimes it would take a year, sometimes it would take a little bit longer. And then when that time has come where they would celebrate, when all of the transactions had happened appropriately, then there would be this celebration and they would start living together. Now, if you're familiar with the nativity story, Mary and Joseph, right, were engaged to be married. They were betrothed to be married. They'd made a, a, cov- a covenant to one another and a vows to one another, but they were not yet together, which is why this whole thing with Jesus coming uh, to a virgin is such a scandalous thing. It really made for some difficult conversations for John, because here he was planning to divorce her in quiet. Like, well, how can you divorce her in quiet if... You aren't even married. It's because the Hebrew system of of engagement and marriage is much different than what we know. And so in line with this mindset of marriage, it sheds light on your salvation in terms that you have been united with Christ. Right now. If you're a Christian, you have been united with to Christ. He has given himself to you, and the Christian life is learning how to give more and more of yourself to him. But right now, you are in a season of betrothal and waiting. We're waiting for Revelation chapter 9, verses 6 through 10 to happen. For this marriage to come to fruition, for the relationship to be consummated and and to to be taken to new horizons. Now, seeing salvation as a marriage celebration, seeing it as, as marriage helps us avoid reducing salvation down to self-interest. Here's what I mean by that. Let me, let me tell you. I've got three boys. I don't most of you probably know this, but I've got three boys. Um, Kuiper's four, going to be five. Riken's two, and Zane's, I don't know, eight months or something. And the older two boys are very different. Kuiper is very affectionate. He loves to spend time with me. I love hanging out with the dude. Riken is not quite as into me as I am into him. He's very much a mama's boy. In fact, I think in like order of preference, it would be his mom and then her dad, Becca's dad, because he's actually a real bloodline to him. I don't really count. And then maybe me. But he just really gravitates towards mama, which is fine. That's fine. Hopefully he grows out of it. But my boys love technology. I mean, they love watching Netflix or whatever silly YouTube video is on, you know. And, and, and then we try to be very 
uh, moderate their time in front of these screens as much as we can. Um, but these boys just love to spend time watching their little videos. And every once in a while, I'll be flipping through the news on my phone, or I'll be doing something on my phone, and, and Riken will just sort of nestle up next to me. I'm like, oh, this is sweet, buddy. Like some, some daddy-son time. He just wants to sit with me, put my arm around him. And then he keeps moving in, and I realize he's not really there for me. He's trying to get at my phone. He knows that there's a little red square with a play button that'll lead him to all the videos that he wants to watch. He just needs to get to my phone. But, but to get to my phone, he's got to get to me first. And so we see this, and you can probably see this if you're a parent. You've, you've seen how that plays out, and we can laugh about it. It's kind of what kids do at that stage. But I think there's many of us who do that same thing with God. We come to God not necessarily for God, but for what he has to offer. Whether that be a more fulfilling life, to, to clear our conscience. Maybe it's to find a good honey, right? Looking for a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl. It might even be just a matter of like, I just don't want to go to hell. I just want to escape that. See, if that's the case, then, then your pursuit of God, your desire for God isn't actually for God. It's rooted in self-interest and what he can give you. That makes you a spiritual gold digger. And, and if this is your version of salvation, let me tell you, that's not salvation at all. If you're, if you're chasing the goodies and not God, it's likely that you aren't saved. You're just religious. If you would be happy with all of heaven's luxuries, if you'd be happy with the golden streets and no more sickness and no more pain and relational conflicts resolved and always have a positive amount in my bank account, all of these good things that heaven has to offer, and you'd be equally happy with heaven if Jesus were removed from the equation, then you're not after God for God. You're after God for what he can give you. But... If you're born again, if you have been saved, then you long for God more than anything else in the world. You want to know him. You want to worship him. You want to commune with him. You want all of your life to be lived out right in front of his face. And so in this way, salvation is not about self-interest, but it's this deep and intimate relationship that we have with Jesus. It's the ability to say, like, like the hymn writer says, take the world, but give me Jesus. See, that's the picture that this wedding feast paints. It's a bride and her groom. That's it. That's why she's there. That's why she's in front of the altar. She's here for Jesus, and the rest is just a beautiful bonus. And so we see marriage, this marriage feast, not only combats our self-interest, but also our tendency to reduce salvation down to individualism. 
As the church has been influenced by culture, one of the questions that gets asked over and over and over is, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Now, that's a fair question, right? If we're talking about intimacy, and that's a fair question. But what has happened is this personal relationship has transformed into an isolated, private relationship between me and Jesus exclusively that happens in some sort of spiritual vacuum. And I want to just tell you that that is not salvation. If, if your version of salvation is just me and Jesus being together, loving each other, it's all good here, then that's not it. It's an unbiblical discipleship paradigm. It's unhelpful and dangerous because it gives you no accountability and doesn't ground you within the larger narrative of Scripture. God isn't just saving a person. He's saving a people. And verse 9 blows this up because it shows us that God is throwing a party, a wedding party, and you don't have a say in the guest list. It says, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's God's party. And in fact, there's probably going to be a lot of people there. And some of them, if you were throwing your own party, you wouldn't invite them to that party. But because God is throwing the party, he's inviting who he wants, and it's your joy and benefit to be among the people that God is saving. You're one of the gang. God calls us in to be part of a covenant family because it's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus and his bride, and I'm inside of that bride. And so at Sacred City, we, we practice being a community together. We practice being a covenant family, practicing, because here at the meal, we see this, this sense of community and hospitality and, and spending time and presence with one another. And, and this eschatological meal, this meal that's gonna happen in the future, works its way back in time and changes how we eat our meals in our daily rhythms right now. And I'm not talking about some sort of silverware from the future, Okay. I'm talking about how God uses our dinner tables for community and for mission. At Sacred City, we want people to be involved in meaningful community. We make that plug every week. We want you to walk alongside others, ask questions, wrestle with your faith, spend time together, learn from one another, share life together within the context of a missional community. Now, the biggest pushback with this is that, well, we're just too busy. We got so much stuff going on. Now, if you're too busy, that probably means that you're not eating your meals together as a nuclear family, right? Meals are on the go. You're going from this to that, and we just don't have time to sit down and protect the dinner table with our family. Now, that's a, that's a discipleship issue. That's a big issue because the dinner table holds the greatest opportunity for gospel conversations, And we ought to be leveraging those for the sake of the flourishing of our kids. But if you are doing that, if, if you are eating a meal with your nuclear family, then it doesn't take that much more time to invite somebody else to join you, to come over and share a meal. 
But the other pushback, man, is it just, it kind of feels forced. Like, I like my missional community, but I don't necessarily, like, love hanging out with them just because we don't have a lot of stuff in common. But that's where you're wrong. You do. With your missional community, you share the most profound commonality, and that is your love for Jesus, and that transcends every other disagreement, every other difference that you might have. And the thing that makes gospel community is not that we all share the same interest, but at the core of our interest is the person and work of Jesus. And when we say, you know what, we're not going to gather around sports, we're not going to gather around these hobbies, we're going to gather around the person of Jesus, that's what makes us a gospel family, a gospel community. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus says, what good is it if you hang out with the people that you like? What good is it if you... Hang out with the people who'd like the stuff that you like and do that, all that, you know. Even the pagans do that. But Jesus is setting up a, a community that is countercultural, a community that is radically diverse, but founded and grounded upon Jesus and the gospel. And so, as Christians, we use our dinner tables to cultivate a diverse and growing gospel community. But our dinner tables are also a tool for mission. And when I talk about being a missionary, a lot of people get freaked out. It's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know the right words to say. I don't, you know, if they ask this question, I don't know if I'd have the answer. At the core of mission is hospitality. It's not having the right answers. At the core of mission is hospitality. Hospitality is the act of making somebody belong, creating space where somebody else can say, hey, yeah. I think I can see myself here. And the more you make room for someone at your table, the more you communicate to them that you're making room for them in your life. See, this is exactly what God has done for us. He he sought after us. He brought us to his table. He made space for us. I mean, just think of it. So much of Jesus' ministry was done around a table sharing meals with outsiders who would become followers. And so as we share meals, we're inviting people to our table with the hopes that they'll accept the invitation that God has for them to join him at his table. And so that means that we're providing people with time and space to wrestle with the tough questions, to count the cost, and to see the reward of following Jesus. Now, let me, let me just ask. I know everybody in this room eats. I know it. Let me just ask, are you, are you being selfish with your dinner table? Are you protecting that as, as sort of like a family member's only space? Or, or are you leaning into that as a tool for building gospel community? Are you leaning into that as a tool for living on mission? I think God is doing big things, like bigger things than we can wrap our minds around right now in our city. And I think most of these big things that happen are going to start with little conversations around a dinner table. Do 
Your dinner table could change somebody's eternity. Can you think of that? So there's the dinner table. I'm, I'm sorry, I know I'm kind of, I don't know where I'm at at time here, but I know I'm going. I can't too excited here, because here's the good part, because the war, the war is necessary for us to expand our vision of Jesus. That's what it does. We go from seeing this meek and lowly, I'm going to go quick here, this meek and lowly Jesus that we see in the Gospels, and then we move to Revelation where we see this strong and fierce and ferocious Jesus, and they're not, they're not one or the other, they're both. We see this in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. John seen heaven open up before him, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judge and makes war. His eyes are like, the, like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name in which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him with white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he comes to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This isn't a wimpy, blue-eyed, fairy Jesus. Think, think Rambo here. This is Jesus decked out, eyes like fire, sword coming out of his mouth. He's got like, you know how boxers wear those robes and they got their big name? He's got a big old robe and he's got a tattoo down his leg. King of kings, Lord of lords. He comes with vengeance. Now I think horror movies have it all wrong here. right? They, they frame up demons and this spiritual evils as this really terrifying thing. They're nothing compared to this vision of Jesus. Nothing. This is what demons are scared of. And this Jesus is who we go to war with. And listen, when, when this, this war scene is opened up here, it's not the army in front, the, the, the church going out there to swing their wimpy little swords. It's Jesus who's out on the front lines. The church is safe behind him. He is leading the charge. Now at this point, this is where Satan and his compadres, if their hearts weren't so hard and resistant towards God, this is where they would be reevaluating their life choices because they know their end is near. It's too late for them to escape. The battle lines have been drawn. You see this in, in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. This is sort of a parody of the other feast that's happened just a little bit ago. And eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The lines have been drawn. Now, just imagine this. On one side, you see Jesus, this rider on a white horse, and the, and the church clothed in these beautiful linens behind him. And then you see this line, and then you see all the enemies of God, all the components of evil. Satan, well, Satan's not really here yet, but, but, but the, the, uh, the beasts are here, the people who are 
just bent against God. All the demons are here, all the fallen angels, right? And there's this clear line, and over the head of only the evil ones are these birds that are flying because they know it's almost lunchtime. There, there's, there's no birds above the church. There's no birds above Jesus because they know that Jesus is going to win. And as cool as this is, it's pretty anticlimactic because there's no back and forth. Jesus wages a full-on assault of all that is evil, and he annihilates them. The last parts of this chapter show the beasts are captive and thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the... the, the everybody that's opposed to Jesus is wiped out. Now, what does this tell us about our salvation? It tells us that for those who have faith in Jesus, victory is as certain as the pew that you're sitting on. The day is approaching. Romans 13, 11 says, the day is nearer now than when we first believed. It's coming. It's not a matter of if it will happen. It's when it will happen. But it also points to the fact that this salvation is forever that these enemies are destroyed. There will be no more resurgence of evil. They're done for. It paints this picture of the day when evil and sin and temptation are in the rear view mirror. See, this is how salvation is defined by a, a wedding supper and a war. Eugene Peterson says, salvation is the intimacies and festivities of marriage. Salvation is aggressive battle and defeat of evil. Salvation is neither of these things by itself. It is the two energies, the embrace of love and the assault on evil in polar tension, each defined by the other, each feeding into the other. This is what salvation is. And while the fullness of salvation awaits us in the future, salvation is unfolding before us now. And we have a meal that helps us prepare for that. At the Lord's table, yes, we remember that the, the body and the blood of Christ was broken and shed to attain our salvation. He died in forgiveness of our sins to save us from the penalty of hell and the wrath of God. It is a free gift of grace that anyone can hold on to. But it is also a pre-celebration celebration. It's an anticipation of the wedding banquet that is yet to come. It's saying there's a day where the bride will stand beautiful, ready to receive her groom. But this meal is also a war. As we come to the Lord's table, we confess our sin. We re repent of our sin. We go to war against the sin and evil that is within us. We know that the Spirit of God is working to put the thing, those things to death. And so as we repent of our sin and trust Jesus, we know that little by little, we are experiencing victory. 
until one day we experience in its fullness. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the picture of salvation that is both a war and a meal. Father, we pray that you help us to do both of these well, to take and eat, to be nourished in this battle that we find ourselves in, knowing that one day we will no longer fight the flesh. No longer will there be such thing as temptation. One day we will be delivered. We will be saved from all the corruption and evil that is surrounding us in this world. And Father, until this time, we ask that you would bring more and more people to this table, that more and more people would experience your salvation, what it means to be saved, that they would trust Jesus, put their hope in him, that Jesus would be their all in all, and that we could see the family of God grow and grow and grow for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.